please take out a copy of God's Word, turn in it to John chapter 15. We're going to be back in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 this morning, page 902 in the Pew Bible. Yes, the beard is gone. You still have to listen to me. Minzy said it was holding back my table tennis game last night, and so it's gone, shaved it off. John 15, 12 through 17. Where are we? I am the vine, you are the branches. We are still considering this beautiful and brilliant metaphor that Jesus is using to teach and prepare his disciples for his departure and what they are called to, what life in him is going to look like. We've seen who Christ is. He is the God of life, come to give his life in our place for the forgiveness of our sins that we might live. We've seen how we are to respond to who he is, abide in him and bear fruit. Since he is life, we find life only in and through him. And just as a branch bears the type of life of the tree, right, the branch of an apple tree bears apples, so too will we in Christ, connected to Christ, the life of Christ working in us, flowing through us, it will produce the fruit of Christ-like character and conduct. The fruit is Christ-like character and conduct. The fruit's just Christ in us. Christ manifested through us. The outworking of the very life of Christ himself and that life will look like Christ himself. And so this is really important. This, this is what salvation is. This is what God is doing. He is making us like Christ. It's not just rescue from, it's rescue for. God is not just saving us from hell. He is forming us for heaven. He's forming heaven in us. And what is it that most characterizes heaven and the God of heaven? What is the fruit, the characteristic and conduct that is most Christ-like? It's love. Love. Next time we make a radical shift in verse 18 from love to hate. This week is a sermon on love. The next, we've got a sermon on hate. But this may be the more difficult sermon. This may be the more difficult one for me to both preach well and for you to actually hear and receive well. Why is that? Well, it's because we find ourselves in a culture where the currency of love is increasingly debased. To debase is to lower the value of something, right? A government just prints a bunch uh, more money. It, it lowers the value of the money. It debases the currency. In a similar way, we so overuse the term love and apply it to all sorts of things that are not love that we debase the word and the concept of love. So it's hard to hear and understand what Christ is saying here. What do we do in such a love-confused, love-redefined, love-devalued context? We have to work harder, and we have to pay much closer attention to what God's Word says that love really is. For we all know, 1 John 4, 18, that God is love. And so whatever love is, it's measured only in accordance with Him and His standard. And so we have to look and listen to Him if I want to know what love is is foreigner 1984 it was a good year and a good song what does life in christ look like it looks like love what does love look like it looks like christ 
And he shows us that love by teaching that love and by commanding that love here in our text. I'm a big fan of last time and 15 verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Right? I like being told that Christ loves me as much as the Father loves him. Perfect, unfailing, fulfilling, satisfying love. I don't like verse 12 as much. Love one another as I have loved you. I don't like being told as much that I am to love you in the same way that Christ has loved me. I am not very good at that. That is beyond my ability. I, left to myself, am unloving and unlovable. You sometimes, left to yourselves, are quite unlovable and unloving. But the command is here, and it's, and it's clear. So the question is, this morning, as we're considering is, is, is how's that going for you? Love one another. Not abstractly and generally, but practically and specifically. How's it going, loving the person sitting right beside you right now? Loving that one person in this room that really gets under your skin. You're thinking of someone. How many of you are thinking of me? Don't, <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand. No hands. No hands. What do we do with this command? Verse 9, our only hope is that we abide in his love. And so we have to start there. We have to first start with his love for us and come back to it again and again. And so we begin today with the end of our first verse. Point number one, quite simply, we got to consider those five words, as I have loved you. Only then can we start to hear and do number two. Therefore, thus, out of that, love one another. And then we're going to come back again and close with his love. Point number three, you are my loved ones. Right? I really want to highlight and emphasize that the intimate and necessary connection between God's love, our love, God's love, the inside, what we're commanded to is impossible and it will not happen if we don't get the outside and emphasize God's love for us. And as probably the chief love struggler in this room, I am in desperate need of a deeper understanding and a more consistent and continual abiding and living in the love that surpasses knowledge. So last time was bear much fruit. How? Well, let's now consider Christ's more excellent way. Here's your big idea. Love for one another comes only from knowing God's love for us and obeying God's law to us. Love for one another comes only from knowing God's love for us first and obeying God's love to us next. Let me read the text for you and let's see if we can derive that idea from this text. I'm reading in John chapter 15 for you, starting in verse 12 and I'll stop in verse 17. Please pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love 
one another. Let's begin this time with a word of prayer, asking for God's help. Father, we have just sung and asked you in song that you would show us Christ. Father, it is here in your word that you show us Christ. Father, these are the words of eternal life. Christ is the word of life. And we have for us here Christ revealed to us so beautifully and so clearly. We have here uh, words of life that are so wonderful and good and yet so difficult uh, for so many of us. Father, we are in desperate need of your help um, in this time. Uh, We want to love as you have commanded us. You have commanded us to love one another. And so it starts, we know, only with seeing and appreciating and living in light of your great love for us. Father, so show us Christ. Show us the great love you have for us as revealed to us in Christ. Father, use this time, please, to make Woodside Community Church uh, more and more into a body, a family, a community that loves one another well because of your perfect love for us. Father, please help the preaching of your word. Uh, Please help the hearing of your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Uh, We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, quite simply, you're starting with, as I have loved you. We're starting first, not with the command itself, but the basis of the command, both the how and the why of the command. Uh, The command is, it's clear, it's simple. Love one another. And it is a command. The Greek word commandment means injunction, order, law. You'll hear people say silly things today, like you can't command love. You can't legislate love. Yes, you can. Christ can. And he does here. This is a command. This is my command as God and Lord love one another. And so people only say such silly things like you can't legislate love. People only see love and law in opposition to each other only because they fundamentally misunderstand what love is. And that's why Christ's words are so helpful. That's why we start with the as I have loved you. Jesus has just told us in the previous chapter, 14.6, that he is the truth. Truth is that which accords with reality. Christ is that which accords with reality. Or better yet, reality is that which accords with him. And so if we want to see what love is in reality, we must look to the one who is truth and love. So he is telling us here, love, not as you want to define love. Love, not in accordance with your own personal love language, whatever that is. Love, not as you determine that someone should be loved. Love as I have loved you. And so the obvious question then is, how has he loved us? He tells us, look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what love is. And that's what love does. None of this uh, squishy, sappy, sentimental, vapid, ultimately empty thing that gets labeled love these days. Today, love equals little more than accept me, affirm me, applaud me, admire me, advocate for me. But don't you dare ever tell me that I'm wrong or that something that I'm doing is not good. We think of love almost exclusively 
therapeutically in the inward self-esteem building, comfort giving, good feeling benefits that it it can give us. You are loving me if you are building up my self-esteem and my good feeling and my comfort and my inward self-identity. But what if that's not love at all? And I know I probably harp on this somewhat, but it's because we're so surrounded by this cheap love substitute that we can't help but being influenced by it. And thus we cannot help but to think somewhat of God's love in the same way. This is very dangerous. We we, we are so prone to think God is there to accept me, affirm me, applaud me, admire me, advocate for me, not tell me that I'm wrong or that something that I'm doing is not good. And when he's doing that and I'm feeling that, well, then I feel good and I feel loved. But again, what if that's not love at all? What, What if that's the actually the opposite of love? What if God loves us completely differently, but infinitely better than that? As I have loved you. Remember, that's largely what this whole farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17, is about. It opened in 13, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then there was the wonderfully moving scene of Jesus, Master and Lord, God himself getting down and washing the feet of the disciples, all while Judas is preparing to depart and betray Jesus. And so there's been this great contrast between the self-giving of Jesus and the self-seeking of Judas. Here's what love is, and here's what love is not. And in, and in, in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is symbolically showing them what he's about to do for them, how he is going to love them. And we know that it is ultimately by giving himself for them to seek their good and purify them. That's what love is and does. I want to run through a couple of verses here for a second. Uh, Jesus tells us to abide in his love back in verse 9. That's what we're trying to do here in this first point, to abide in his love. That abide, it means to be be occupied with it, to, to give it great attention. It is to depend upon it and to trust in it, to rest in it. It is to fix it before your eyes and read the whole of your life and experience and circumstances through the lens of God's love. This is precisely what David does in Psalm 26.3, which Pastor Mike just read for us. I was really struck and helped by Psalm 26 this week. I don't particularly care if you use my emails, but you must use the Psalms. You just must use the Psalms. Christians used to understand that we were meant to live in the Psalms and that we couldn't survive without the Psalms. You cannot thrive without the Psalms. I'm finding them more and more comforting, more and more challenging. But in 26.3, I've read this Psalm dozens, hundreds of times. I don't know, but it struck me this week. I really noticed it for the first time. 26.3, David gives us one of the great secrets of the Christian life. He is once again in trouble. He needs vindication. He needs deliverance. And he cries out to God, your steadfast love is before my eyes. That's huge. God's has said his his steadfast covenant, unfailing love. David said that he lives with that love fixed before his eyes. And we're focusing for a few minutes here because this is our only 
hope for loving one another. Such often unloving and unlovable people like me and like you. I encourage you this week to go and read Spurgeon's sermon on Psalm 26.3. I saved it from the email for it right now. Go Google Spurgeon, think well, do well. It's an amazing sermon, a great title. Allow me to quote from it briefly and just be happy that I'm not reading for you the whole sermon because I would, I would like to. I thought this week, maybe I'll just preach Dan's sermon from last week or maybe I'll just read Spurgeon's sermons because they are both so good. But here's what Spurgeon says. Brethren, depend upon it that you shall find each of you when you get dull and flagging in the practical part of your religion. Pause. How many of us have been there or are right there right now? Dull and flagging, we would say cold or lifeless, or we would say drifting. He says, each of you will find when you get to that part that the proper way to revive it is to think more than you have done upon the loving kindness of God. That is so simple, but so helpful. Church, you need to think more than you have done upon the loving kindness of God. We're coming to point two. Are you struggling to love one another? Think more than you have done upon the loving kindness of God for you. Spurgeon continues, you cannot think too much upon divine loving kindness. You may make this the one sole topic of your thought and still escape narrow-mindedness. This love has so many links of union with all other subjects that when you consider it, it will bring up a whole circle of profitable meditation. Think of the divine loving kindness and it shall be good, only good, and good continually. And as you muse upon God's love, your thoughts will humble you. Why such goodness to me? To me, who is less than the least of all your mercies. And this same theme will be equally sure to comfort you. Is the Lord so good to me? Then amid every adversity, my spirit shall rejoice in the Lord in glory in the God of my salvation. All because of the loving kindness of the Lord and the increased awareness and musing and meditation upon that loving kindness. You cannot think too much upon God's loving kindness as I have loved you. How has he loved you? A couple of verses now. Write them down, hide them in your heart, burn these into your brain and keep them always before your eyes. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. All right, great. How? What does he do? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say that Christ did this while we were enemies of God. I love that. We just read Jesus say that there's no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We're coming to that friends word in point three. But what about the love that lays down its life for its enemies? For we know that that is what we were in and of ourselves, left to ourselves. By nature, Ephesians 2, this is, this is so Important. I, just read, I just read a whole apologetics book, and it's pretty good. I was going to check this one out. Whole long thing, arguments for God's existence, defense of the faith, all these things. Last chapter said, hey, basically, if you don't have an awareness or understanding of sin, none of this stuff's really going to matter. Until you can get to that place where you can feel the weight of your sinfulness and how it separates you from the Lord, nothing is going to compel you and drive you to the Savior. Ephesians 2, 1 is so important. 
important. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. In John 15, Jesus is speaking us of us from the reference point of his electing saving grace, setting his love upon us, making us his friends. But in and of ourselves, we made ourselves enemies of God. Our sin separates us from the God of life, and thus we are left only with death. And that's why this love is so amazing. Again, you minimize the sin. You minimize the amazingness of the love. Uh, the less you realize what your sin is and how wretched it is and what it deserves, the less you're going to appreciate Christ and his love and what it is that he has done to save you from that sin. Because this is what his love does. This is why this love dies. It is to take our place and save and spare us from the death that we justly deserved for our sin. This is the very gospel that is of first importance. Christ in loving us seeks our good. And so we're talking here first primarily of love as action. Love seeks the good of the loved. And the highest good is God himself, the God of life. The highest good is life with and in this God of life. But we had no right, no ability, no way to be right with the holy God of life whom we all rejected in our sin. The wages of sin is death. But God, 1 John 4, 9 and 10, write that one down and consider that one this week. How do we keep this loving kindness before our eyes? Memorize these verses, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is the same John. He has heard about the love here in our passage. Now he's giving us his own inspired commentary on that love in 1 John. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. He affirms us, accepts us, celebrates us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the, the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. You see, love starts with God. Love doesn't accept us, affirm us, applaud us, admire us, advocate us, advocate for us as we are in our sin. No, thank God, no. The love of God sees us in our sin and sees that sin is misery and death. And then it does something about it. And that something is the death of the Son of God himself for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. In this is love. God seeks our infinite and eternal good in the death of his son for us. Write this one down, Galatians 2.20. We haven't focused on the beginning of this one and not the end. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? There's the vine. There's the life of the vine producing the life of Christ in us. But Paul continues, and the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how he loved us. He died. Husbands, you better know this one by now. Husbands, if you haven't memorized this one yet, you are failing. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. Ask Christ, love the church. 
and gave himself up for her. Husbands, die. Die to yourself for the good of your wife. Why? Because that's exactly what Christ has already perfectly done for you. Here is the self-giving, self-sacrificing, other-seeking, other-serving, never-ending, never-failing love of God for his people. We just worked through Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 7 and 8 on Thursday. God says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It's entirely because of the Lord. And so why have we spent so long on these five words, as I have loved you, when the, the thrust is the command, love one another? It's because this, this is everything. You can't do point two without points one and three. As Spurgeon said, you do not think on this enough. I do not think on this enough. We cannot think on this enough. There is nothing more important than you need to know than this love of God. You will not love one another if you do not first abide in his as I have loved you. Do whatever you have to do this week. Whatever you can do to take some sort of practical step to fix this love before your eyes and to think on this love consistently and constantly. If you don't have Romans 5, 8 or 1 John 4, 9 or Galatians 2, 20 memorized, maybe that's your practical, simple application. Memorize one of those verses. It would take you a couple of minutes a day to memorize that verse this week. And then you come back to it and remind, this is how he has loved me. God himself, Jesus Christ, died so that I could live. Fix it before your eyes. For this is where you will find your life and your joy and your peace in knowing and resting in and living out the eternally and indescribably good love of God for us. A love so good that it saved us from an eternity in hell. A love that is wielding and working everything, everything, for our good. If God is the sovereign ruling Lord, and if he is love, then he is orchestrating all things in your life, ultimately as an outworking of his love for you. Even the confusing, difficult, painful things. Even that person you thought of at the very beginning, the person that's bothering you. Even that person's there, and God is going to use all of these things. Whatever you're looking at right now and saying, this is bad, and this is hard, and I don't like this. If God is sovereign and he is good, then he guarantees that he's using those things in some way to bring about your eternal good, an eternal weight of glory, full joy the likes of which we can only begin to imagine. Fix that love before your eyes and read whatever difficult circumstances you are facing right now through the lens of that love already fixed before your eyes. A love big enough to take whatever it is that you're facing and ultimately bring about your good. Everything starts with and depends on God's love for us as I have loved you. And so now, point number two. Love one another. Notice that we get it twice. Bookending our passage 
It's not, you don't have to guess what this passage is about. Verse 12, verse 17. And remember, he's just told us this back in 1334. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Repetition. Are you being tired? Are you tired of being commanded to love one another again and again and again? Maybe it's because we are painfully aware of how little we actually and actively and affectionately love one another. And so we don't like to be constantly confronted with God's good law here. Maybe we're repeatedly given this reminder for a reason. We're so bad at this. And yet this is so good. And so we need to be encouraged to do that which we are so bad at, but which is also so good over and over again. Because of what love is. Remember, it's, it's the action of love. Think first the action of love, the seeking of the good of the other. Think Philippians 2, that the looking not only to our own interest. We're, I'm really good at looking at my own interests. He says, don't do that thing that you're really good at. Look also to the interests of others, that thing that we're not so good at. Uh, counting others more significant than yourself. How would we relate to one another if we actually counted one another more significant than our own selves? This is, this is what love is and does, and this is why it's so good. But because of the very nature of sin, that, that inward, selfward turn and focus, this whole love thing is, is really hard, and we are really bad at it. And so God's good word and law tells us again and again what is good and what we are to strive for. Love one another. Love as Christ has loved us. That self-giving, self-sacrificing, other-seeking, other-serving, never-ending, never-failing love. How are we doing here, Woodside, with this love as Christ has loved us? I was so blessed and helped by Pastor Dan's sermon last Sunday. It was the perfect complement to what we're doing here in John, uh, what we're trying to do in the small groups. We, we want to know one another better. We want to care for one another better. And the very heart of that care must first be prayer. And so a word last week on what love prays down for gospel friends was, was so timely. A consideration of how and what Paul's, Paul prays is always timely because Paul simply Prays differently than we pray today. We just do not pray anymore like Paul prays. And Dan drew that out well. And I want to pray more like Paul. Two things I love about Paul's prayer from Philippians 1 that Dan drew out. First was Paul's thankfulness. Philippians 1.3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. And so Dan challenged us. How often do you thank God for one another? And second was Paul's affection. 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. Both of those words, that the yearn and the affection, both of them are affection words. The word there, the second one that's translated as the affection of Christ in the Greek is literally the word for guts. The guts back then was, was the metaphor for the place of deep feeling. They, they get it more correct uh, than we are. You don't feel things in your heart or in your chest, right? That's a heart attack, right? Don't, don't have that, right? We feel things in our guts. You get butterflies in our stomach. You, you have a gut feeling. And so they use this gut word to convey a 
affection. The point is that Paul says he longs for the people with a deep feeling. He literally says the very guts, the very affection of Christ himself. And so side note, Dan was simply confirming what I've been saying all along. When Christ calls us here to love one another, he is calling us here also to like one another. Get over it. You're wrong, and I'm right. I simply cannot imagine Jesus saying to John, yeah, you know, I know that Peter's really obnoxious. I know he's off-putting, but it's okay. You don't have to like him, John. You don't have to like Peter. You just have to love him. That's absurd. No, he would say to John, repent. Love one another. Love one another with the very affection that I have for you. But how do we do that? Well, I think we start with the first thing that Paul does there in Philippians 1. I think we start with the thankfulness. It's often said that if you hate someone, begin praying for them. Because it begins to get really hard to hate someone that you're praying for. In the same way, if you're struggling to love and like someone, begin giving thanks for them. Because what, what happens, it's so easy for us, we get, we get these blinders on. It's so easy for us to focus on one another's weaknesses and failures and says, there's that one thing about that person that just, ugh, right, it just drives you crazy. And then that's, that's all you can see. And so when we do that and when we focus on that one thing, we miss entirely maybe all these other strengths and successes and Christ-like characters, all of which, by the way, are a result of God's grace in that person's life whom God himself loved. And so refusing to see that and give thanks for that is a refusal to recognize God's work and God's grace in one another. And so start by focusing on that and start by giving thanks for one another, by praising God for one another before you petition God for one another. And second, it's, it's, we, we grow through our, our understanding and appreciation of God's love for us. That is going to bear the fruit of one for love for one another. Second, sorry, it's intentionally praying for one another, praising God for one another, giving thanks to God for one another that will bear the fruit of love for one another. And so we, we have to grow in our understanding of God's love for us, and then we have to grow in the active discipline of starting to pray for one another and thank God for one another and praise him for the people that he has brought uh, together um, in this church. Nicole called us a motley crew at small group this week, and I liked it. It's, it's a, this is a beautiful motley crew of different people brought together in Woodside, all united by this love for Christ. Love one another. And then, how do we do this? We do it simply through the disciplined exercise of acting in love toward one another. We have to understand God's love. We have to begin to pray and thank God for one another. And then we need to act and intentionally and actively seek the good of one another. Nike had a super sale last week. Emma and Lila have been running with me. And yet for some reason, their dumb feet keep growing. Right? They keep getting bigger. I don't know. Like They keep growing out of their shoes. And so I bought them this week a super sale pair of the same shoes that I run in so that we can run in the same Nikes together down the street in Sunnyside. But what did the box say when it got here? What does it say on the box, big letters in the Nike box? Just do it. That's what it says. Just do it. Terrible advice. Terrible theology for the unregenerate. Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. No one can just do it. 
in regards to the things of God and in regards to anything related to righteousness or salvation. And even for the regenerate, even for we Christians by God's grace, just do it left to ourselves is terrible advice. 15.5, for apart from me, you can do nothing but with him, with Christ, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, God himself, infinite in wisdom and power, in us and working through us, we can do all kinds of something. And so in him, with him, abiding in him, sometimes we very much need to be told to just do it. And sometimes we just need to do it. And I know that that can be the case for me. I am a profoundly selfish and lazy person. And that is a bad combination. And I can way too easily sit in that selfishness and laziness and do nothing. And sometimes it really is quite as simple as just getting up, getting over myself, praying, repenting, and doing something. Forcing myself, as Dan put it, to get busy for the kingdom by reaching out in love to encourage and help others to get busy for the kingdom. I've always liked the definition of discipleship that says that it's the deliberate doing spiritual good to another. The deliberate doing spiritual good to another to help them follow Jesus and be more like Jesus. That's not too bad of a definition for love for one another either. Love seeks the good of the loved, and there is no higher good than Christ and Christ's likeness, and so it takes active and intentional steps to help form Christ in others by doing them spiritual good. Look at the end of our text. I wanted a fourth point, but you know how it goes, and so I folded it in here. The text closes with the command, love one another in verse 17, but notice the so that there. It's not just the love of God that encourages and empowers our love for another, one another. It very much also is the law of God as well, for love is the fulfilling of the law. The whole of the law is about love and is summed up in love, love for God, love for neighbor. And so Christ says he commands these things. He gives us his law so that we will love one another. Right. So the law in Christ helps us to do that. Now, don't discredit the law. It, it, it condemns us apart from Christ. In Christ, it's a wonderful uh, help, help and aid. But look at verse 16. Here's further motivation. Hey, guys, why, why should you love one another? Well, first off, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So we should do this first because of grace, because of the sovereign grace of God uh, that freely chooses to save whom he will. And that means reason to boast. We have no credit to claim. It's not because we did anything, earned anything, deserved anything. I've just never understood any of the arguments for how it's dependent upon our choice, how that does not make faith a work, and how I am not doing something inherently better than the person who's not believing if it's up to me, and I'm the one who's figured it out and believed. Don't, don't do that. It's Grace, God's grace gives us the new life to which we respond in repentance and faith. It's not because we were so lovable that he loved us. It was entirely because of his sovereign, saving, free love that he chose us and saved us. Us, wretched sinners. How 
Could we not then respond in kind uh, with that same love and seek to love one another as we have first been so perfectly loved by him? So he says, first of all, grace, I chose you. You didn't choose me. But keep reading. Why did he choose this? We keep coming back to this. We're trying to get that we're not just saved from, but we're saved for. For what? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You see, there's the fruit again. We argued last time that it was Christ-like character and conduct. As we are united to the vine who is Christ, we will produce the life of the vine, the attributes and actions of Christ. And surely, the actions and character of Christ includes the salvation of souls. Many argue that here in this verse, the bare fruit attached to the verb go, you should go, must here specifically be highlighting Christian service, doing as Christ does, going forth with the gospel, carrying on the mission and work of Christ, which was the making of disciples, the salvation, and then the shaping of souls into the image of Christ. That's how we're to love one another, by helping to bear the fruit of Christ-like character within one another, by doing deliberate spiritual good to one another by increasingly and more intentionally going out of our way to seek the spiritual good of those around you. And so if you are here and you are a Christian, especially if you are a member of Woodside, your application is to just do it. It's, it's just obey. It is always right, all the time, to obey God's command. Always. Never a question. You never have to, like, you know, here, it's always right to obey. And the command here is love. And what a command. What a God whose law is love. How can you practically and actively obey that command today and this week? Can you pick up the phone and make that one call? Can you reach out and establish a connection with that one person? Ask how you can pray for someone. Can you ask if you can pray with someone? Can you ask if you can read the word with someone? What do you know that you should have been doing that you keep putting it off? You just say, I know I need to do this thing, or I know I need to make this call or this effort, and ah, you just keep putting off. Just do it. Love one another. Pray, giving thanks for one another. Do the action of seeking the spiritual good of one another. And then watch by the grace of God as the affection for one another grows as a result. As I have loved you, both in action and affection, love one another. Point number three. Let's circle back and close by again intentionally fixing God's love for us before our eyes. You are my loved ones. Where does that come from? Well, I think this is neat. Uh, again, hopefully it's not just me. But if I'm being completely honest, I'm somewhat uncomfortable with the word friend in our passage. All right, look at the passage. We've already seen that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now look at what Christ, the transcendent, sovereign Lord of the universe, says in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't know when this was, college or right after. Years ago, someone drudged up this old, old Christian music video and put it back out on the internet, and it sort of went mocking viral. It was, by, it was from 1981 by some group named Sunseed, and it was painfully cheesy and cringeworthy bad. 
uh, go Google Sunseed, uh, Jesus is my friend. And I cannot help hearing this song when I read, Jesus is my friend. I can't help hearing it when I read these verses. It, it's, it's terrible. But just as our culture has debased the currency of love, so it has debased the currency of a friend and friendship. Friends are acquaintances, someone we somewhat like, someone we're loosely connected to on Facebook. And we know the word friend and the concept of friendship has been debased when we call those things friends. We generally use those things as tools. We collect them for the purpose of clicks and likes. We use them as tools in the service of self. It's not about them loving them, but loving self through them. And tragically, we can also use Christ in this same way, simply as a tool ultimately in the service of self. And potentially we can do that with this idea that Jesus is my friend, if we are not careful to understand it rightly. I have argued before that the New Testament has two main words for love. You know, you've heard of agapeo, agape, and phileo. Agape, phileo. Two Greek words. And I've argued that in the New Testament, they're actually generally used synonymously. You often hear preachers make a big deal about the unique quality of agape love. This is divine love. And that's different from phileo, brotherly, friendship love. That's a great idea, but it's just not how the New Testament uses the words. John, our apostle of love, is 1333, the disciple whom Jesus loved, agapeo. He is, 20 verse 2, the disciple whom Jesus loved, phileo. Same thing. John 3.35, the father loves the son, agapeo. John 5.20, the father loves the son, phileo. Same thing. And so when John the apostle of love later writes his letters, we see that he frequently refers to the church as his beloved. And that's a form of the verb agape. It's agapetos. It's just a noun form of the verb, the loved ones. Our word for friend here in our text, it's, it's similar. It's phylos. It's just the verb phileo, to love, in the noun form, loved one. Translated, yes, here, friend. But since John doesn't distinguish between agape and phileo, many argue that we could and should just as well translate this as beloved ones or those whom I love. Consider this in context, too. Remember that five times now, starting back in 1415, Jesus has linked loving Christ with keeping Christ's commandments. Well, here's the sixth time, 1514. You are my friends, my beloved ones, if you do what I command you, love and obedience. And so I think the emphasis here is not so much that we are his friends as we conceive of the term today, but it is still very much on how Christ loves those who are his. Now listen, I'm fine with the word friend if you Somebody's going to get upset that I'm saying we're not friends with Jesus. I'm fine with it if you're careful with it and it's rightly understood. But let's be clear. Jesus is not my buddy. He is not your buddy. And whatever the specifics of what friend means here, it's clearly not the same thing as we're talking about, and it's clearly not reciprocal. Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Surely I cannot say to Christ, hey, Jesus, you are my friend if you do what I command you. Sure, I can say, hey, Anthony, you are my friend if you do what I command you. Anthony, no, that's not friendship, uh, as we're talking about it here. This must be something different. 
And so, yes, we have like one spot where Abraham is called a friend of God. But listen, God has never called Abraham's friend. And in fact, nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament is either God nor Jesus ever referred to as the friend of anyone. And so I would be very hesitant to use that language because Scripture doesn't use it in that way. We may be called God's friends here, but God has never called our friend. And so that song is not just cheesy, it's, it's wrong. Now, again, to be careful and clear, I'm, gonna try, I'm trying to overqualify because uh, somebody's going to be mad. To be careful and clear, I say this in no way to minimize the love of God or the intimacy and the care and the communion that we have with Christ. Yes, what a friend we have in Jesus. But don't miss what characterizes that. All our sins and grief to bear. Right? He bears the sins of those he loves. And then we have the great privilege of carrying everything into him in prayer. Why can he bury those, carry those sins? And why can we carry thing, everything to him in prayer? Because he's God. And so again, if that's what you mean by friend, if you simply mean close intimate with us, caring for us, then please, by all means, use it. But my concern is that the current conception of friendship, especially in this age of social media, will infect and influence how we read what Christ is saying here. One more time, Jesus is not my buddy. He is my Lord and my master. But he loves me, and he loves you. And it's the fact that he is the Lord that loves sinners like us, that makes it so amazing. There should be nothing more surprising and nothing more amazing than this. We are His loved ones. We are those beloved by the Lord of all. What a, what a privilege. What a blessing this is. Let's just be careful not to trivialize it and cheapen it. Last thought. Look at the end of verse 15, and I'm done. This will hopefully help clarify some of that. What does Jesus mean by the word phylos, friends, or loved ones? How does he love us? Look at what he says. 15, I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's beautiful and wonderful. Um, flip to Psalm 25 for a second if you would like. Psalm 459. I want to talk about this for one second. This text would have gone perfectly with Psalm 25, which Pastor Mike led us through in the email last week, but Dan messed it all up. Uh, but it'll work here as well. In Psalm 25, 14, this is really interesting. David says this in Psalm 25, 14. He says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Catch the and. And he makes known to them his covenant. Again, friendship there's, it's not really the best translation. The word is nowhere else translated as Friendship. David next uses this same word in Psalm 55, 14, where he's lamenting being betrayed by a close friend. The betrayal is so painful because of the friend was one with whom, 55, 14, we used to take sweet counsel together. It's that same word, sweet counsel. And so the King James translates the friendship word in 25, 14 as the secret of the Lord. The NASB does a little better uh, clarifying the secret counsel of the Lord. The word is a word of intimacy and fellowship. It speaks of intimate communion and communication. This with the Lord is for those who fear him. And then the next line, the and, look how these go together. We have this sweet, intimate counsel and communion 
and he makes known to them his covenant. So we're seeing great intimacy and insight. We're seeing relationship and revelation. What does it mean that he makes known to them his covenant? These are those who already fear the Lord, thus they're already in covenant with him. It must then mean that God is leading them to know and grasp even more the length and the height and the depth of that covenant. He is more and more revealing the goodness and the glory and the grace and the sheer delight and joy that is to be found in him and his ways with his people. And that's what Jesus is saying in 1515. You are my friends for I have made known to you. I have revealed to you all that I have heard from the Father. Here is love in revelation. You see, communication is at the very heart of communion. And Jesus is saying here that he calls us his loved ones for he has communicated to us the best and most important thing in the world, God himself. He is the word made flesh. No one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, he has made him no. And so I want you to see here as we close the love that is revealed to you and the fact that this revelation is, is given to you here. This is evidence and communication of the love of God. We have the very words and mind of God recorded for us here in the Holy Scriptures. What love is that? That, that God would reveal himself to us through these words and we have the Spirit promised and revealed in these very chapters who helps us to see and understand more and more of the depths of the person and work of God, the holiness and the glory and the love of God. Greater love has no one than this, than God himself reveal himself to us. He condescends to us. He saves us. And then for the whole of eternity, he promises to go on communicating himself, communicating infinite goodness to us as we see and hear and know more and more of the God, John 17, 3, whom knowing is eternal life itself. And so I want you to see the great love that is revealed to you through the great revelation that is given to you through the word of God illuminated by the Holy Spirit Use that which is uh, the evidence and expression of God's love for you. Fix that love before your eyes by using the word uh, where that love is recorded so beautifully for us. This is the love of Christ for us. This is what it means to be his friend. It is to be loved by him to the point that he reveals himself to us. He saves himself and he makes it clear to us that he is what we are looking for. That his love is what we are all after. And that his love is life itself. Church, fix this love before your eyes. Go back again and again to the as I have loved you. And then get to work loving those around you. Those that God has first loved and has sovereignly ordained to be your brothers and sisters in Christ at Woodside. As I have loved you, love one another. It is only as we 
um, learn God's love for us and increasingly by his grace obey God's law to us that we will grow in our love for one another, both in action and affection. Let me close you now with a word of prayer. Father, please help us. We believe that your word is living and active. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe that he works to take that word that he inspired and perfectly preserved. He also works to illuminate that word. And give us eyes to see and understand that word. And Father, here that word and that law is love. And we want to learn more and more like David to fix your eternal steadfast covenant love uh, for us before our eyes. Father, it is somewhat easier to do that as we sit here and we focus and we hear your word and we sing your praises and, and we pray. But Father, once we leave those doors, um, Father, our eyes go elsewhere so quickly. Father, teach us how to meditate on these things day and night. Teach us what it looks like to, to never leave behind your love. Uh, teach us what it means truly to abide in you and to abide in Christ's love. And I pray that that love will more and more uh, fuel and motivate everything that we do here at Woodside. Father, I thank you for the great love that you have already poured out in this place. And there's so many evidences of that love uh, as we grow in our love for one another. Father, what a blessing and a gift and a privilege that it is to be here and to be part of Woodside and, and what it is that you are doing here. But our desire is to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, fruit that would abide. And so we ask that you would continue to produce that Christ-like conduct and character in us and through us. Make us a people who are intentional and deliberate about reaching out and seeking and serving and loving others and pursuing their spiritual good. And Father, unite us together in Christ and in love and continue to draw people to Jesus through what it is that you are doing here. At Woodside. We thank you for loving us. Father, help us to love one another more and more as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.